0: Good morning. Let me let me pray uh, for us, myself, the Lord that He would take and use His word in our lives. Let's pray, Father. We come as Your people, sobered by the reality of Your word. We wish to now soak our minds and our hearts and our affections and our soul in the truth of your word that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that I would be abiding in you, that you would be living your life through me as I seek to teach your people, your precious people, your word. So be with us now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've titled the sermon, Knock Off God, but I want to say right up front that the idea that's happening in our text is Paul is laboring in these chapters to help us understand the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. You may remember if you were here, in one of my sermons, I said, basically, if you took Hitler and you put him over here, just the unrighteous murderer of millions of people, so representing absolute heinous evil and sin, and then on this side, you had a righteous holy, without sin, spotless God, I basically said that if you were to put one of us, any one of us, including me, anywhere on that continuum, you would, based on Scripture and what Paul is saying in Romans, you would have to put us all the way over here, that that is our condition even as Christians living in this fallen world because sin is just the air that we breathe. And so Paul is laboring this point. He's trying to help the Christians in Rome understand just how profound the sin problem is and how righteous and holy God is. And so with that in mind, A knockoff God, it's a colloquial term, it's just an informal term that we all use, and it's interchangeable, the word knockoff, with counterfeit. So sometime during the sermon, instead of saying knockoff, I may say counterfeit, the words are interchangeable. But y'all know what it is, it's buying a product that doesn't have the actual logo, it's not the official product, it's a knockoff. It's an imitation. It's a counterfeit. As a preteen, so I want you to know that I wasn't very old when I was doing this because I'm really embarrassed that I did it. I had a buddy. His name was Paul. Paul and I wanted to wear cowboy hats for the summer. And we thought that we would look really cool in our cowboy hats that summer. And so Paul's father was the, uh, Woodstock was a small place at that time and he was the only veterinarian in town and uh, I would consider his family to be at least upper middle class and so Paul's mom went out and bought Paul a really nice cowboy hat. Like I would bet $200 nice cowboy hat. And meanwhile to my surprise my father came home one day with a cowboy hat for me. And the reason that was a surprise is we were, at best, I would say, lower middle class. I wasn't expecting him to do that. I thought I would be cutting grass most of the summer to buy a cowboy hat uh, so that I could match my friend Paul. But that summer, we wore our hats proudly. We were the coolest kids ever. Just ask us, we would tell you. And then it just so happened that at a friend's house... I jumped in the pool. I had gotten so comfortable wearing my hat that I didn't realize I had it on. And so I jumped in the pool and my hat sunk around my head like butter melting in a hot stove, never to be worn again. It was absolutely destroyed. And so I hid it from my father. And one day, my father said, hey, you are so into the cowboy hat thing, uh, where's your hat? And I contemplated on that moment, lying like every kid would uh, or does. But I said, Dad, (sighs) I took a deep breath. I said, I ruined that hat. I jumped in a pool with it. I'm so sorry. I just knew I I was going to receive his fury He laughed, and he said, son, I only spent $10 on that hat. It's not a problem. Well, I felt great that I wasn't in trouble, but I have to tell you, a wave of emotions ran through me. It was disillusioning. It was like I thought all summer long that I was wearing this really nice, expensive hat, And when he told me it was less than $10, I felt small. I had been disillusioned into believing that I was wearing something of high quality. Well, it was a counterfeit. It was a knockoff. And it has been my experience in ministry now for 25 plus years that many Christians are this way. Their view of their relationship with God is really a knockoff. It's a counterfeit. It's not authentic. And the moment their faith gets tested, road tested by life, their faith falls apart like my hat melting around my head when I jumped in the pool. Paul is saying in this letter to the Romans, to, first in chapter 1, 18 through verses 32, he's telling them, you have suppressed the truth of God for a lie. So he's telling, he's speaking more about the Gentiles. He's saying, you've suppressed the truth of God for a lie. What could be seen about God was plain through his invisible attributes. But like a ball in a pool, you've pushed it down. And though you keep pushing, it keeps popping up. The truth of God keeps popping up. And you're pushing and you're trying to hold down the very truth of God. Why? Why do we do that? I think it's because the heart is a desire factory, and the heart wants what the heart wants. So, even though maybe the Word of God says this, and I hold it up high because it should be the authority, we push that down because we want this. And so, we suppress the truth of God for a lie. The heart wants what the heart wants. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 1. Now, when you get to Romans 2, Paul turns the guns from the hedonistic pagan Gentiles to the moralistic religious Jews. And in Romans 2, Paul says, you've essentially done the same thing. You've been listening to me talk about them But you're using your morality and you're using your religion so that you feel good about God and you feel good about where you are with God. But in truth, you're suppressing the truth of God for a lie as well. And it's a knockoff, God. It's not the real thing. It's not. You know, there's something about wearing a knockoff product when you know that you're wearing it. It doesn't satisfy the way the brand name does. And uh, it doesn't feel, even when you're wearing it, genuine. And it usually lacks quality. This is true in our relationship with God. When we're faking it, either by saying we believe in God, but we have created a God outside of the Bible of the the God of the Bible, then we're probably practicing moralism and not a genuine relationship with God. And that's what Paul is saying all through chapter 2. So to worship God in truth, you see right now as you sit here, every one of us in some way or another has an image of God that is not the truth. And probably where that is more true than any other place is in your view, and Paul's going to get into this in a moment, of your goodness. In your view of God's holiness and your unholiness. So, we must worship him and we must take him at his word. All of it. The word of God is essential essential to a Christian truly knowing God and worshiping Him in truth. So that is the key, I should say. This is the key to not worshiping a knockoff counterfeit God. If you read something in here and you suppress that truth to believe what you want to believe, trust me, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your God. You're worshiping a knockoff counterfeit God. You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. In our text today, Paul is saying the Jews have an advantage. And you know why he says they have an advantage? Because basically, the Roman people are listening to everything Paul's saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And they are religious moralists. They are religious people that that are Jews. And they're saying, well, what advantage do we have to be Jewish? And Paul says, and this is so key. He says, look with me if you would at your Bibles. at uh, Romans 3, 1 and 2. So Paul, if you, this is how you should understand this. He's anticipating his audience's questions. So he's asking the question and then he's answering it. He's anticipating their questions. So he says, they're saying, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Which the circumcision was a sign of God's promises to his people. So he's saying, what advantage does the Jew have? And Paul says, much in every way. But to begin with, the Jews were entrusted, in some versions say, with the very words of God. Why does he start there? Because that is the most essential means we have for understanding who God is. And he says the Jews had the word of God. They were extremely blessed. They had an extreme favor on them because they had the very words of God. That's massive in Paul's mind. And so we sitting here right now, you have the word of God. And this is where I want it to be practical for you for just a moment. We have the Word of God. We should be reading God's Word. We should not just be reading it, we should be studying it. We should be in it as believers, as followers of Christ all the time. It should just be normal for us to wake up and open our Bibles and spend time with the Lord, in his word, in prayer. We should be meditating on the word as we go through the day. You know, I read that this morning. I wonder what that means. What would Paul be saying after that in verse seven? He says this, I wonder what that means. And just wrestling and then talking to God about it. Lord, what does your word mean when it says this? But you know what is more common than not? One friend of mine told me at his last church, there was a particular lady who left her Bible on the fifth pew of the, of the church every week to keep her spot. Now, you might say, well, she's a good church-going person. That's great. No, that's terrible. She needs to be studying her Bible all week. How can she study her Bible if it's sitting on the fifth pew? And then people leave the church and they put their Bible in the back window or they throw it somewhere in the car, not to be seen again until they show up on Sunday. What I'm saying is the Lord's people, if they're not going to serve a knockoff God, a counterfeit God, they must be saturating themselves. Y'all know that's not good. Uh They go the other way to try to trick us, but we know what's happening back there. All of us. Um, We do this because we're not in God's word. Now, the first uh, eight verses of the chapter, Paul is anticipating questions that are growing out of chapter two. <clears throat> I have this in the PowerPoint. And I think it's it's helpful to see it this way, in kind of a question and answer. And so, I borrow this from Tim Keller. In his study, he has the question and then the answer. The first question in verse 1 that Paul uses to help us understand the text is this <clears throat> Paul, are you saying there's no advantage to biblical religion? Remember, he says, what, what advantage is there to be a Jew or to be circumcised? So Paul's saying, are you, I mean, Paul's asking the question as if he is them. Are you saying there's no advantage to biblical religion? And the answer you see there, no, I'm not saying that. There is a great value in having and knowing the very words of God. A great value in this. The second, coming from the third verse, the question is, remember, Paul is asking the questions. It's kind of tricky to kind of help answer their questions. So Paul says this in in, uh, a different way. Yes, Paul, but those words have failed, have they not? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's Son, Jesus. What has happened to the promises? Does it not feel like God made all these promises to the Jews and now it's not really being fulfilled? Paul says, despite... His people's failure to believe God's promises to save are advancing. Our faithlessness only reveals how committed to his truth God really is. And then you get to the third. There's four total questions. In verse 5, the question could go like this. But if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, you see, Paul has said in Romans 1.16, the righteous shall live by faith, right? The Jews, the Jewish people have had all of these laws for all of these years. And when they hear that, they're saying, Paul, you're saying all it takes is just to believe? What about circumcision? What about doing good things? What about feeding the poor? What about all these works Paul, you're teaching a cheap grace. That's the way they're thinking about what Paul is saying. And so, Paul says, I mean, the question there is, but if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is it fair for him to judge us? And the answer is, on that basis, if that were true, God would not judge anyone in the world, and we, Paul and the religious Jews, would all agree should be judged. In other words, that's not true. And if that were true, judgment should fall on us. The fourth and final question coming out of this in verses 7 and 8, it says, well, then if me sinning makes God look better because his grace covers it, Well, then if, hang on, let me get my wording. If me sinning makes God look better, that means that I should sin more, shouldn't I? So that his glory is more clearly seen. And Paul's answer is, I've been accused of thinking this. That's what I meant by cheap grace. And I certainly don't believe that. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude that is absolutely worthy of the judgment of God. Now, let me bring this home, I hope. Practically, how does this work in our day? The righteous shall live by faith. In our day, in the last hundred years, pastors have wanted their churches to grow. And instead of preaching a whole gospel, in my opinion, they've preached truth. But they've slimmed it down to a bare minimum. And what I mean is this. All you have to, this is, this is the false gospel. All you have to do is believe in him as Savior. And ask him to be your Savior. And you will spend eternity with God in heaven. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like a false gospel to me. That actually sounds like the real gospel. Let me show you what I mean. If we say that and we don't say that when someone has true faith from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit, their lives will begin to be transformed and they will move at least from way over here with Hitler to right here. They will begin to be sanctified and made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit, living in them and working through them. If someone hears a gospel message and prays a prayer to be saved without receiving Jesus also as their Lord, willing to submit to him in holiness and to follow him with their whole heart, then we have not really taught them a biblical gospel. And so we have many, many who believe I'm saved, but they are living a life of a complete hedonistic pagan. But they can remember and they can point to a time when they pray. That's what the Jews are accusing Paul of saying. You're just saying all it takes is belief. Belief. The righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's saying, I'm not saying that. You've got it wrong. Listen to the rest of my message. And so, I think it is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place for the church to dumb down the gospel and not communicate to people that when God really comes in your life, He changes you from the inside out and you begin to desire his word like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word of God. And then it says, you will be holy as I am holy. The church has to be the true church. The true followers of Christ are called to be holy. And without holiness, we must conclude they have believed a false gospel. It's not a true gospel. And I say that is rampant all over our country. In churches all this morning, they're they're teaching a false gospel. Look with me at Romans 3, 9 through 12. Romans 3, 9 through 12. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And the answer, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And then he goes into from Psalms, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, nobody. No one, get this. No one seeks for God. You may say, well, I sought for God. Well, hopefully we'll get to that. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become, no one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. You sit here and you go, I can think of a lot of people that do good. These are hard sayings. What is Paul saying? No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. What is he saying? I'm going to say this, and you're going to think I'm crazy. But I feel that I need to say this. Really good people will feel hell. To its brim. Really good people. Will feel hell. To its brim. Because they have settled. For a knockoff version of God. They have suppressed the God of the Bible. To trust and believe a God that they. Can live with. That they can. Can get by with. And we know that because they won't believe the Bible and they won't live the Bible. That's how you know. And that's why Paul said the Jews, the Jews are fortunate because they have the actual word of God. You see... The biblical Jesus, much like buying the real thing, I did not have the money as a preteen to go buy the cowboy hat that Paul got. I had to settle for a knockoff. What I think is happening all over churches and all over our country is people are settling for a knockoff God because the biblical Jesus is just too dadgum costly. He says hard stuff. I mean really hard stuff. He talks about a place called hell where people will go for all eternity. And then many in our culture say that just cannot be. And so I will be an annihilationist. Meaning after we die, we're just annihilated. It's over. We don't have to deal with any of that. That's just not true. But the truth is, that's a biblical Jesus. You see, a biblical Jesus says, men and women are different. I created them different for a reason, and it's a good one. There is male and there is female, and only that way is the right way to be married. I don't like that. I think we ought to be able to marry whoever we want to marry. A woman should be able to marry a woman. A man should be able to marry a man. So I'm not going to follow that, Jesus. I'm not going to, dadgummit. I just think the word is not true. It's a fake God. That's not a God. That doesn't save. It's not real. I want you to follow this. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God... Page 115, if you have the book, you can look it up later. He says, some text, like this text, it says, no one is good, no one seeks God. That's hard stuff. Some texts may not teach what they first appear to teach. Some people, however, have studied particular biblical texts carefully, and they come to an understanding of what they teach. And yet they still find that text, even after understanding it, They find it outrageous and regressive. Now, I have a slide. I I want Michael, they're going to need help to see this. So, what should you do when you read a text and you find it outrageous or regressive? Keller says it this way I urge people to consider that their problem with some text may be based on an unexamined belief in the superiority of their historical moment over all others. In other words, you've elevated our time over all other times. Like, we have more knowledge now. We're wiser. We're smarter. We get it. That's what he's saying. So he also says, we must not universalize our time any more than we should universalize our culture. In other words, our time and our culture, we're not better than everybody that's ever lived before us. We're just not. We think we are. We want to think we've figured it all out. We're smarter. We've evolved more. But that's a bunch of baloney. It's just not true. Think of the implications of the very term regressive. To reject the Bible as regressive, and there's a slide for this is to assume you've now arrived at the ultimate historical moment from which all the is regressive and progressive can be discerned. In other words, right now, today, we got it all figured out. We know what's right. And this is old news, brother. Can't believe this. Huh. Here's the kicker. And I hope we got that. That belief is surely as narrow and as exclusive as the views in the Bible you regard as offensive. You follow that? It's just as narrow. It's the same argument. It's the same argument. God says no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now, when we hear that, we may think, have you you not had this thought? I've had this thought. I've even had this thought about me, all right? They don't deserve such harsh treatment or circumstances. I mean, that's a common thought. That's not the truth. It's not. You are seeing with sin-stained glasses Sin-saturated minds. Sin-motivated hearts. Sin-consumed culture. Sin is the air that you breathe from your first breath to your last. The truth is, the biblical truth, is you and I deserve nothing but hell. It's not popular. Most people won't say it. But that's the truth of the Bible. God's grace is that you won't be there for eternity. If you deserved heaven, grace would be cheap. It would be cheap. But you don't and I don't. The fact that God would reveal himself to us through his word and give us his son and allow us to enter into a Everlasting, future, eternal relationship with heaven is grace upon grace. It is grace upon grace. Frankly, neither you or I know what good is. We think we do. But I'm certain, based on Scripture, that our understanding of goodness and justice is far Far off base. And that's why I say hell will be filled to the brim with good people. Because what I'm saying is you say they're good. I say they're good. God doesn't say they're good. Men like to believe, people like to believe we're basically good. And that belief is reinforced by modern psychologists, counselors, and even a great number of pastors. That you're basically good. The truth that the Bible says is you're worse than you ever thought. You are in a terrible situation. Sin is... You are born into it. And deep in our hearts... Man knows there's a problem with the way he is, that something is wrong, and it's not just a matter of what he does, it's who he is internally. It's not right. He feels guilt, not only about things he's done, but about who he is. And there's a slide, people feel guilty because they are guilty. The guilt feeling is a symptom of the real problem, which is sin. And so, you go to your psychologist, you go to your counselor, doesn't matter how many you get, it will not relieve the person of their guilt. At best, it can help you feel better because superficially and temporarily, you can place blame on somebody else. But ultimately, that'll eventually intensify your guilt because you know it's not true. The 19th century preacher, Baptist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, told this story over and over, and I think it helps get to some of what we're saying. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. Yeah, a carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. And when he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So the gardener turned to leave and he said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce even greater crops. It is yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of the incident and thought, if that is what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see the difference? If you know God's love and you know the love of Christ, And there is nothing you can do or need to do but accept his perfect righteousness on your behalf. When you do that, then you can go and you can feed the hungry. And you can visit the sick. And you can clothe the naked. And all of it will be done as a gift to God in righteousness. Holy. Because your motive is pure. But if you think you're going to get or keep your salvation by doing these good deeds, it is really yourself you are feeding, yourself you are clothing, and yourself that you are visiting. It is who we are serving in our hearts that matters. Jesus is about motive. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. How many people as a pastor, you know, Clint, how many people did you go visit this week? How much time did you spend on your knees in prayer? How many people did you share the gospel with? I could say one or none to all of those, but if my heart was right before the Lord, it would be an honor and a gift to him. This is why any goodness we have in ourselves becomes sour. If we do good to gain God's favor, blessing, or salvation, we will become smug, superior, and complacent. If we do badly, we will become anxious, self-pitying, and angry. The good deeds done outside Outside of trusting the gospel will make us become sour people. George Whitfield said this. Now follow this. I think there's a slide. I think this is well said. The main difference between a true follower of Christ, a Christian, and a religious person is not so much their attitudes towards their sin, but toward their good deeds. Both will repent of their sins, but only the Christian will repent of wrongly motivated good works while the religious person will rely on them. I am laboring up here to help us see our depravity how broken and messed up in our sin we are. Because only when you see your sin, you really begin to see it. Do you fall on your knees before God and ask him to save you? To save you from your sins. To save you from yourself. That God, I need grace. I am undone before you. And God in his graciousness will come into your life, be your substitute. His, the wrath of the Father will rain down on the Son in your place, and you will experience a life-altering, transform, transformational change inside you that will begin to produce good works that you will offer to God as a gift, not to try to earn your way into heaven. But you will see, as Paul has said, the righteous shall live by faith alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need to see our sin for what it is and to turn to you in repentance and faith. Would you Give us the grace to do just that, even now for some, perhaps. But for others of us that know you, would we repent of the sin in our lives and turn to you? Would we read your word, study your word, meditate on your word, that it might transform our souls? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.